Thanks, Kristen. Good afternoon, church family. It's good to see you guys. If I haven't met you, my name is Hunter, and I'm privileged to be uh, preaching the word today. Uh, As Kristen read, our passage is from uh, the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. And last week, Pastor Josh brought up the analogy of a lawyer and a courtroom when he was uh, giving his sermon. And I want to kind of continue with that uh, to this afternoon. Maybe you've seen on TV where a prosecutor or a defense attorney is preparing for a case. They've kind of built an argument, and then they sit down with one of the witnesses before the case, and they kind of go through questions that they may be asked, right, um, by the opposite um, attorney. Uh, difficult questions that they may be asked, questions that are trying to poke holes in the argument that they've built, the case that they've built. And uh, a good lawyer will prepare the witness for those questions, right? And so Paul is doing something similar today in our passage. Uh, He's been writing this letter to the church at Rome, arguing for the gospel, right? And preaching the gospel. And so today he's kind of anticipating some difficult questions that may come up from those who are hearing or reading the letter. And he's prepared for these questions. He's raising them really in hopes of seeking the truth. And he knows that God and the gospel can stand up to these difficult questions. And so some of the questions, he's actually going to give us a little bit of an answer. And some of them, um, he's not going to quite answer in our passage today, but he's going to answer them later on in the book of Romans. So you can kind of look at the questions today as sort of an imaginary question asker or objector that Paul uh, is putting forward. So it's really important for us, uh, since most of the passage is questions today, to think about what has Paul been saying so far in the book of Romans. And if, if this is your first time with us, or if you haven't been here, we're several weeks into a series on the book of Romans in the New Testament. And the book of Romans is a letter that Paul wrote to this church at Rome that was made up of both Jewish background and Gentile background Uh, believers, followers of Jesus. And we really said that a key verse that kind of tells what Romans is about is from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I'll just read that for us to give us some context. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so in the section we're currently in, in the book of Romans, uh, from about chapter 1, verse 18 to 320, Paul's been making this argument that all of humanity, the Jews and the Gentiles included, are under God's righteous judgment. And the passage last week, we've, we saw that he proclaimed that the Jews are are really no better off when it comes to the judgment day than the Gentiles. That all people have sinned. And as Josh pointed out, uh, he also is arguing that it was always about faith in God. That salvation was and is and always will be about faith in Christ. And so the, the eight verses that we'll look at today, Paul sort of takes a slight detour from preaching and raises these Questions. So you can think of a slight detour of questions that might come up in the minds of the Jewish people. 
And just so you know, it is a difficult passage, but we'll kind of break it up into four questions, four main questions, and four main responses to those questions. And we'll really see, I hope, the beautiful thing about studying the book of Romans is that we get to go really deep into the questions of the gospel. And then as we study it over a long time together, we really get the whole full picture together. And so we have to be patient as we study it. If you take away one thing from the passage today, I hope you take away that God really is faithful and completely righteous in judgment. So let me just pray for us before we jump into the passage. God, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you for your faithfulness to give us your word, that we can study it together. Um, God, we ask for your Spirit's help as we seek to understand and obey and apply your word, God. As I preach this message, God, would you help me? I feel inadequate to preach um, your word today, God. And so we just ask that you would help us see you more, God, that we would see you as righteous and just, and uh, that we would know the forgiveness that's found in your son, Jesus Christ. And so we ask that you would help us as we come to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's take a look at verse 1 to begin with. Paul says, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what value is circumcision? So the main question here, what is advantage is the Jew? And this naturally flows out of what we read last week. Josh had said that the Jewish people relied much on their heritage, and that they thought because they were a part of the people of Israel, um, that they were good on Judgment Day, right? They um, didn't need to have faith um, because they were God's people. But Paul told them that no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, right? But that it's really about um, the heart and a heart change. And so that naturally then brings up a question for them, right? Well, then what, what good is it to be Jewish then? What value is circumcision? What, what value is our heritage? And so verse 1 really presents that question in two different ways. And if you've been paying attention to the last couple of weeks in Romans, you might say, I don't know. What, what value is there? Uh, but Paul gives us a really helpful response. He says in verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So Paul tells us there's a lot of advantages to having this Jewish heritage, right? And much in every way, he says. But then we see that he only lists one thing, right? Which is a little confusing, a little perplexing. We might be expecting a list here since he says, to begin with, why does he do that? Well, he's going to spend two chapters from Romans 9 to 11 to really address this issue later. And there's going to be a whole list of advantages that the Jewish people have. But we'll get to those in, I don't know, like 20 or 30 weeks, something like that. And uh, we'll leave that for them. So we'll address this one reason right now. Uh, entrusted with the oracles of God. So what does he mean by oracles of God? Well, oracles, at least in the U.S. where I'm from, isn't really a common English word that we use. It sounds a bit strange. To me, oracle sounds like magic or something like that. But um, it's really simple. He just means the words of God. The Jews were entrusted with the words of God. And here, in this context, he means the whole Old Testament. So the law, the prophets, the writings. God's people had all of those, right? And they were entrusted to steward them. And it's a big advantage to have 
the words of God, right? In the Old Testament, we see that no other nation was given this privilege. Psalm 147, 19 and 20 tells us that. It says, He declares His word to Jacob, His statues and rules to Israel, and He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know His rules. Praise the Lord. And so, in other words, no other nation was given direct access to the words of God, right? The Jewish people were entrusted with the very words of God. That's what Paul's telling us here. And not only did they have uh, the law, the prophets, the writings, but they, in these, they had God's promises, right? They had God's promises that he would save his people from their sins one day. He ha- they had his promises for how he would act in the world, and they had his promises for a Messiah that he would send one day, right? And that we know to be Jesus. And so that's a huge advantage and blessing. In fact, it's a huge advantage and blessing to um, believing the message that Paul's been preaching, right? He says the Jews have an advantage because they had the promises of God. They had the oracles of God. And so when we stop and think about it, this question kind of becomes quite um, ridiculous, right? What advantage has the Jew? It's like a father telling their son that there's buried treasure out there somewhere. And it's buried treasure out on an island. It's enough treasure for everyone. It's literally limitless treasure, right? And if you could find this treasure, the father tells the son, you could give it to anyone. You can give this treasure to anyone and still have plenty for yourself. But the treasure is not just for you. And everyone is the same that gets access to it. But I'm going to give you a map to find that treasure. And it's going to have all my instructions that you need to find that treasure and share it with everyone. And then the son says, "Um, but what advantage is it then to be your son? Like, what's the value in being your son? And the dad says, well, I gave you the map to the treasure, right? You have the map to the treasure and you have my very words to get to the treasure and share it with other people, right? And so in the same way, Paul tells the naysayers who would say, then what good is it to be a Jew if it's all about faith in Christ alone? He says, you have the very words of God. You've been entrusted with the very words of God that tell you how to get the treasure that is Jesus, right? So I I hope the application for us is quite obvious. The Jewish people, they had the Old Testament And now, not only do we have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament as well. We have the very words of God that have been entrusted to us as the church of Jesus Christ, right? What a blessing and advantage. We can hold it in our hands and read it. We can listen to it. We can listen to other people read it. We can even, nowadays, pick up our phone, put our headphones in, and listen to it in various translations and different languages, right? This is a great privilege an advantage. And we must steward this, right? We must listen. We must read. We must hear and believe and obey the words of God in which he has entrusted to us. Because never before in the history of the world has the word of God been so accessible to us, right? It's so accessible. And so let's steward that reality well, because God has given us his very words now, the map to the treasure that is Jesus Christ. And so the Jews, they were given the words of God, and specifically they were given an advantage to know that the Messiah was coming. They were supposed to be looking for Jesus, right? 
That's what Paul is arguing to them here. Which really leads us to our, our next question. So the question asker then says in, in verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? So the question here stated another way is, is God not faithful since some of the Jewish people did not believe? Now it's important for us to remember that Paul is raising these questions as a kind of tactic to help people understand a teaching method in the letter. Paul's not asking these questions himself as if he, he doesn't really know the answer or he's questioning God's faithfulness. He's really confident in the answers to these questions that we'll continue to see throughout the book of Romans. But he's having this kind of imaginary conversation with this objector. And here kind of starts the but what if questions. So have you ever had a conversation with someone and, you know, they're asking you questions and you answer their question and they say, yeah, but what if? Um, and then it feels like a little interrogation. You answer that question and they say, but what if? Um, and don't say, yes, it's your spouse that you've had this conversation with. But um, we've all had conversations right? this, and it, it gets a little annoying. It feels a little like an interrogation, right? And so this imaginary objector is having these but what if questions. And the next three questions uh, will be these but what if questions. And in this question, Paul really uses a play on words here in this verse. He uses the word faith in different ways uh, throughout the, the verse. So it would be better to read maybe, uh, what if some were unfaithful? More like, did some not have faith? Does their unbelief cancel out the faithfulness of God? And so Paul's really getting at the reality that many of the Jewish people have not believed the gospel when it came to them. Some, some did, but many did not, right? They've rejected Jesus and his followers' message about him because, you see, the gospel was spreading all over the Roman world at this time. Many of the places where Jews and Gentiles lived, and uh, many of them did not believe that Jesus was actually the Messiah that had come even though the Old Testament scriptures had pointed to him. Many did not believe his teaching while he was on earth, and many did not believe the teaching of his followers about his resurrection and payment for sins on the cross, right? And so there was this misunderstanding among some of the Jews of the day that God was supposed to just be faithful to them, no matter what they did, whether they obeyed the law or not, or whether they had faith in God or not. And they were really relying on their heritage. And so this is really why Paul's raising the question, is God unrighteous or unfaithful since, since many have not believed the message? And Paul's response is in verse 4. He says, By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. So Paul says, absolutely not. By no means is God unfaithful. That's his response to the question, right? And so we see three reasons why Paul gives in Romans for uh, why God's unfaithful, despite some people's unbelief. We'll give two of them from this verse here, and then one of them from later on in the book of Romans. So the first one is that Paul says, even if everyone is a liar, God is faithful and true. 
So a reminder, the question in mind here is God's faithfulness, his trustworthiness. And Paul contrasts God's faithfulness or trueness with humanity's lies, right? And he says, even though everyone would be a liar, God would be true. The reality is that every person is a liar and has lied at some point in their life. And if you don't believe me, you can ask a toddler just some basic questions about what's going on, right? And you might see that they might tell you a lie in those questions. We start young, right, in our lives, right? We're, as humans, we're unreliable. And Paul is saying here, even though all humans are not trustworthy, that does not change the fact that God is completely true, completely trustworthy. He doesn't rely on human belief or truth to be faithful, right? So then Paul gives this second reason as an example. And he gets right to the most, to the heart of one of the most respected people in Jewish history. So he quotes the end of Psalm 51, 4 here. And the crazy thing is that Paul expects the church in Rome to know their Old Testament so well that they know exactly which psalm he's quoting from. But we have to look it up, right? So Psalm 51, 4, the whole verse says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And this psalm might sound familiar. It's actually David's prayer of confession after he had sinned and was unfaithful with Bathsheba and then sentenced her husband to to death on the battlefield. And what he's saying is, I've done evil in God's sight and sinned against him. And yet he is just to judge me, right? And so David is showing God to be just. Everyone would look at David's sin, what he's done, and say that God would be just to judge him, right? David's a king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, one of the most respected people in the history of Israel. The Messiah came from his line. And yet Paul says, God is faithful even in judgment against our forefather David, right? So that's the second reason for that Paul gives for the faithfulness of God despite unbelief or unfaithfulness. And then Paul gives a third reason in Romans 9 that we'll just touch on quickly. He says in Romans 9, 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So Paul says, even though people didn't believe, it's not as though the word of God has failed, right? It's not that he is unfaithful. It's that many don't actually belong to Israel. It's, it's just an outward heritage that they have. Outwardly Jewish, but with no heart change, right? And so God is not unfaithful to his promises, to his word, even if some of the Jews did not believe and receive the gospel. And Paul says, not even if everyone rejected it. He's faithful even in his judgment against David. So Paul's point here is that God is faithful, right? No matter what, God is true, God is just, even in the midst of humanity's lies, even in the midst of people's unbelief. And so we we aren't done with the what-if questions, though, actually. The next objection is, okay, I get it. 
The Jews have blessings. God is faithful, even if some reject his message. But what if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God? What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. That's Romans 3, 5. So the question here really is, is God wrong to inflict wrath and judge sinners even though their sin shows him to be right? It's a difficult question, right? When Paul started his argument about humanity's sinfulness and God's righteousness in Romans 1.18, he said something uh, hard as well. He said, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So now he's really returning to the question of the unrighteousness of men. And Paul is so put off by this question about God being unrighteous that he wants to make sure his readers know that he's raising a hypothetical question here. He says, in uh, parentheses, I speak in a human way. He's like, guys, I'm really not suggesting that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on sinners, right? So he wants to make that clear throughout. And look at what his response is in verse 6. Again, he says, by no means, absolutely not. For then how could God judge the world? So this time his response is in the form of a question, right? So you can read read his response as God is the just judge of the world and he is completely righteous. So how could God judge the world? If he was not completely and wholly righteous, God could not judge the world, right? But he is. You and I cannot judge the world. We just read that every one of us is a liar, right? At some point, we're a liar. And liars cannot sit on the judgment seat, and judge the world uh, on judgment day, right? They cannot. However, God is righteous, and the scriptures really shout of God's righteousness and his ability to judge the world, right? So let's just read some of these um, passages. I'm going to read four or five, and they should be on the screen. Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Job 8.3, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? The answer is no. Psalm 67.4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity, fairness, and guide the nations upon the earth. So God's judgment's so good that it causes people to be glad and sing for joy, right? Psalm 97, 2, which was actually read earlier. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. They're the foundation of who he is. Deuteronomy 32, 4. The rock, God, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. He is a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, without sin. Just and upright is he. So this is the God who can judge the world, right? He is righteous. And Paul knows this, and the imaginary question asker 
knows this deep down. God is the only one who is righteous, who can judge the world. And God's justice or righteousness is really a part of who he is. All of what he does is good. He always does the right thing and always acts according to his good character, right? Something that we cannot identify with as humans. Someone in our home group this week said, he just always is who he is. And that's good news for us, right? That God always is righteous. He always is who he is. And so God is absolutely right to judge the world. And he's the only one in the universe who can And we feel this more and more as we read through the book of Romans and we see the sin of humanity, how our sin has filled the whole earth, all of us doing evil daily, sinning daily, failing daily. And so who will restrain the evil in the world? It's the just judge of the universe, God. I love how Charles Hodge describes God's righteousness. He says, he is a righteous ruler. All his laws are holy just, and good. In his moral government, he faithfully adheres to those laws. He is impartial and uniform in their execution. As a judge renders unto every man according to his works, he neither condemns the innocent nor clears the guilty, neither does he ever punish with undue severity. God is a just judge. And this makes me think of the saying you often hear, right? Only God can judge me. And there's some truth to that when talking about the final judgment. He never condemns the innocent nor clears the guilty. The only way that this is comforting about God being this just judge is if you have the righteousness that's found in Jesus Christ, right? It's not in our own being. So, So Paul's answer to this question would be God's the just judge of the world. And that's how we know that he is completely righteous, even in wrath. So one final, but what if, question. From Romans 3, 7 and 8. Paul says, But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do good that evil may come? So the question here really is, well, that sounds like God looks good or is glorified through my sin. So why don't I just sin more? So this is kind of a personalization of the last question, right? It's as if the imaginary question asker says, if my sin just makes God look good, why shouldn't I just sin more? Sometimes we might make ourselves try to look good um, compared to other people, right? So maybe there's someone, we do this on a small scale, but maybe there's someone at the office that we um, feel like they, they're like not as good of a person as us. So you'll say like, oh, they lie. They're unkind to others around them. They gossip. They try to cheat at work to get ahead. And you're like, I'm an awesome person compared to that person, right? Um, have you ever found yourself wanting that other person to maybe mess up so that you look good? And that everyone else in the office is like, hey, uh, that person looks really great compared to this person who just messed up all these things. The wickedness in our heart often makes us think things like this, right? And the question asker here, the objector, is really accusing God of this, of 
uh, making sin, of our sin, making God look good and proving that he's good. And they say, well, if, if that's how it is, then why don't I just sin more and make God look even better? If that's how it is, shouldn't I just keep doing evil so that God looks all the more good? The worse I look, the better he looks, the more glory he gets. That's the question that is being asked here, right? And it's a bad question. I hope you see that. It's a bad question. An unfair question. And so Paul's response, well, Paul gives no direct response, but the implied response is by no means, right? And we'll talk about why he doesn't give it a response. Although Paul doesn't give it a direct answer, he does really give it an indirect one later on in verse 8 when he says, some people slanderously charge us with saying, why not do good that evil may come? Their condemnation is just. So Paul says that some people are slanderously saying that he's teaching this very thing. And the word he uses here for slander is actually the same word for blasphemy. So Paul is calling this blasphemy. Some, some people are blasphemously charging me with teaching this. And so he's saying, of course we should not do evil that good may come. That's absolutely contrary to all biblical teaching, right? God never calls his people to sin or to do evil, right? And so Paul doesn't even validate this question with a response. And though he doesn't directly address it here, he does address it later in chapter 6. And so just so we're clear that Paul is against this idea, let's look just at a couple of verses in Romans chapter 6. In 6, 1 and 2, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then in Romans 6.15, he says, What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Romans 6.11 and 12 says, You must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And so Paul is clearly and decidedly against the Christian living in sin or doing evil, right? And so let me say this clearly. Doing evil is always wrong, right? The answer to this question is, of course not. And we may look at the question and say, yeah, of course not. But practically, don't we live this out sometimes? Practically, I think many times we ignore our sin and we might even presume upon God's grace. And though we may... Many of us in the room are not Jewish and may not identify directly with the questions that Paul is raising. How often do we think, yeah, I'm good. I I come from a Christian family or I'm good. I uh, go to church. No no need to worry about the judgment day for me. No need to fight and worry about my sin. God will be gracious and glorify himself. But this is the very thing that Paul is really arguing against for our Jewish brothers and sisters. And yet today, in a little different way, we're prone ourselves to the same line of reasoning for these questions, right? So we've covered these four main questions and 
the imaginary objector and the response to them. But we have one more sentence in the passage, right? He ends Romans 3, 8 with kind of a striking line. He says, their condemnation is just. So Paul abruptly ends the section with their condemnation is just. So who's he talking about here? Well, perhaps he's talking about those who blasphemously accuse him of teaching, accuse the gospel of being, keep on sinning so that good may come. Or maybe he's talking about those who have lacked faith in the message of Jesus. Either way, the main truth here is that God is just in punishing sinners. And so he, he sort of sums up this section by saying their condemnation is just. God is faithful in judgment, even despite the unbelief of people. And so that's heavy stuff. Where, where's the good news in that? And what do we do with a passage that ends in condemnation, right? Well, thankfully, we're only three chapters into the book of Romans. We have a lot of Romans to go. It's not the end of the story. There's a lot of good news coming, and there's a lot of grace and mercy coming. But now we're plunging to the depths of human sin and God's righteousness, right? And so we must understand these things to understand the gospel. But like I said, there is good news coming. So in Romans 8, chapter 1, Paul contrasts the verse that we just read with, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What good news is that after hearing that God's condemnation of sinners is just, right? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A couple chapters later in verse 10, 13, he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. And so if you've put your faith in Jesus and you're trusting in him for your salvation, he has paid for your sins on the cross. And we really can trust his promises. Trust his promises that one day he'll return for his people, and make thing, all things new. And we can put our full trust and faith in him that he'll do what he says he's going to do, right? And we learn that there is no condemnation in Christ. But the reality here in our passage today is that without him, condemna condemnation for sin is a reality and is just without Christ. So how else do we respond to this passage that's full of questions? We've already touched on a little bit that we respond uh, to the first section by stewarding his word well, the very words of God that we've been given. But how else do we respond? How else does this change our lives? Well, I think it causes us to really put our trust in a faithful God, a God that acts within his character always, even though we fail as humans. He never fails. Think about this. God's never less loving than he should be. He's never not kind enough. He's never too angry or not angry enough. But he's perfect and just. And this is the God that we have, and we can trust him. Not only that, but we can joyfully trust him, as Psalm 67 proclaimed. I think another way that we can respond is um, kind of in just the fact that this passage is here. We should be immersing ourselves in the questions that people around us are raising about the gospel, right? We read that Paul said the gospel is for everyone. 
And so Paul's been sharing the gospel for 20 years all over the Roman world with people at the point that he's writing this. And he knows the gospels for everyone in every situation. And every heart brings different objections to the good news, right? Paul cared so much about the Jews in particular that he wrote these questions out and and tried to give answers to them, right? And so likewise, do we care about the people around us and the questions that they're raising about God and about the gospel? Because we should listen and learn and see what questions people are asking. Paul cared enough to ask these difficult questions, even though they were hard and they would cause a a preacher 2,000 years later difficulty in preaching in this passage. But we should love people around us in the same way. We want to see all people embrace faith in Christ, right? And so we should immerse ourselves in the questions that people have, get to know the questions and see how we can answer them from the scriptures. I think another way we can respond is maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're interested in knowing more about the gospel that we're talking about. And I would like you to know that it is okay to ask hard questions. It's good to ask hard questions. God and the gospel can stand up to any question. It's the truth. And the truth can stand up to questions. And so any of the people in this room would be happy to talk to you about those questions. And I'd encourage you to read the scriptures and ask questions of it yourself. And know that we're here and happy to help you know this Jesus that we love and worship. So just in closing, I, I pray that as we process this passage, that it moves kind of from up here in our heads to down in our hearts. Paul wrote this lengthy God-inspired letters to show those in Rome and us today the gospel and explain it in great detail. And it does require thinking but it should transform our mind and that in turn should transform our heart as well. And so I want to close by reading one of the places where I think Paul really illustrates this well in Romans chapter 11. I hope we see that God is faithful and completely righteous in judgment. And then I hope we respond in in this way that we see in Romans 11 with just this heart transformed heart change. So let me just read it and then pray. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable or mysterious his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he may be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, you are great and glorious. God, your wisdom is infinite. Your righteousness is complete, God. God, we pray as unrighteous sinners that you would Fill our hearts with worship and joy of you, God. God, I pray that if there are people here that have never trusted in you, put their faith in you, God, that they would today put their faith in a faithful God. 
one who carries out his promises, one that is good to his people, one that gives his people his very words, God. So we love you and we praise you, God. May our hearts be changed by the good news of the gospel that we read in Romans. And may we worship you forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.